the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Was driving our daughter Ellie somewhere just the other day last week. She's 13 and needs a better father than I, but she's at a place where she needs a father and a father who will help her through a lot of things. And I seek to try to cultivate a, a place of trust, of tenderness with her, even though I think sometimes she's a bit of a storm who has come into our lives, and we never know where that rather brooding presence is going to erupt next. My wife always brings out the sunlight within her, and I, I enjoy those times. But someone said, you know, at 13, you may not be quite done with this period of her life yet. So pray for something. We're going for a little drive, and she says to me, why are you mad, Dad? Why are you always mad? I said, what do you mean? She said, why did you just take all those deep breaths? I didn't answer. I think I said, well, I'm not mad. But I knew that something in me was actually making me not angry, but afraid. And that she was picking up that fear. Now, when I was young, in my teens, I was studying acting. And one of the things they taught us was relaxation exercises. Acting is very intense, and it has to come from a place of peace. And we were taught to lie on the floor, and we listened to somebody playing the clarinet. But the main thing we were taught to do was to take deep breaths, to breathe from the diaphragm. And that that movement, as innocuous and empty as it seemed, was crucial to gathering your energies together to what was ahead. And I realized at Ellie's comment that I instinctively take those deep breaths when I'm brooding over something in my mind, something that is... Uh, Activating my fight or flight response, my fear, something that I know I have to face, some conflict in the world in which I find myself engaged. Now, I've learned that the secret, the response to fear, is to stop what you're doing, to take time, to acknowledge that which is causing you fear, to embrace it, to take it and take ownership with it, and then simply set it aside. I think Merton said you go to a bridge, you pick it out of the stream, you go to the other side, you drop it into the stream and you watch it run away. You keep doing that as these emotions come through your being. You pick them up, you let them go. Because when you're in the grip of fear, your mind isn't really working very well for you. And I think what Ellie was also saying to me is, she knew that I was not available to her, as I so often am not, 
as I'm brooding over some inner anxiety. I wasn't vulnerable to her. I, in other words, I had no room for her fears, no space to kind of say, how are you? I'm here for you. Stress can kill us, is what I'm saying. And it will kill us unless we find a way to deal with stress. But it has a way of creeping up on us and into our lives very much unawares. Now, it's been a busy week. Uh, there has been, I think, lots of conflict in the press, lots of stories that might be causing a lot of stress to a lot of people. And I could pick up one of these big issues that's been going on and try to play with it. Um, but in this eventful week, you know, for those who have been following your local source of stress, which is either your newspaper or your online sources of information, one of the stories that has stuck with me, the one that, uh, by which I have been most intrigued, was a little one which many have overlooked. It involves a standoff, if you like, a conflict, but on a very small scale, a standoff between a nurse in the burn unit of the University of Utah Hospital in Salt Lake City and a so-called peace officer who uh, came into the unit with a request and ended up uh, putting the nurse in handcuffs and dragging her away under arrest. Now, we're so accustomed these days to seeing our first responders working seamlessly in tandem that it is nothing if not unnerving to see them at odds, especially in the context of a place of healing. The whole episode, which was caught on video, lasted 21 minutes. The narrative, which was as simple as a Greek tragedy, hinged on the continued attempt by the police officer to secure a blood sample from a patient who was sequestered unconscious within the burn unit. And the attempt by the nurse responsible for that patient to communicate to the officer that his request was not only against hospital regulations, it was illegal and she was going to have none of it. As the New York Times reported, the officer continued to accuse Miss Wubbles, the nurse, of interfering with a criminal investigation. If I don't get to get the blood, I'm taking her to jail, he said, adding later, I either go away with blood in vials or body in tow. Has a nice kind of ring to it. <laughs> That's my only two choices. You can see the kind of stress he was working under. Ms. Wobbles put her boss, Brad Wiggins, the hospital administrator, on speakerphone, and he told Officer Payne, Sir, you're making a huge mistake by threatening a nurse. With that, Officer Payne said, We're done, headed out the door, no, and moved to take Mrs. Wobbles into custody. She took a few steps back and screamed, Somebody help me, as Officer Payne pushed her through two sets of doors out of the emergency room and placed her in handcuffs. End of story, not quite. This all happened in July. It's only recently come out and gone viral as this video has been released because Mrs. Wobbles is trying to follow through with this and see if she can get some kind of resolution to a rather unwanted interruption in her day. She was only kept in the squad car for 20 minutes before somebody told the officer that he was indeed out of line. But she didn't want the story to end like that, 
not just for herself, but for anyone else within her position. She's received apologies from the mayor, the police chief, and everybody within arm's reach, but she wants the thing just to be brought into the open air. Officer Payne on administrative leave is likely looking at new career options right now. We haven't heard anything from him, but I trust he will have his day in court. In the meantime, judgments are coming in regardless. Robert J. Loudon, a retired chief hostage negotiator with the New York Police Department and a professor emeritus of criminal justice and homeland security at Georgian University in New Jersey, watched the video and said in an interview on Friday that Miss Wubbles was an absolute professional. This wasn't about her. She was there protecting her patient. As she said at one point, that blood isn't mine to give. It belongs to that patient, and I don't have a right to give you what is not yours. Officer Payne, on the other hand, was 100% not correct. He said, adding, it seems to me he's in need of an attitude adjustment. All right. Well, after that extended illustration, this is the point I wish to make. What is it, I'm asking, that so puts the blinders on us and so blinds us to all the warning signs that we might be doing the wrong thing for the wrong reason, that we push on to the inevitable but wholly avoidable conclusion? What is it in our human nature, our sin nature, that so renders us insensitive and insensible to both outer and inner markers that we persist in overcoming good with evil time and time again, just when we think that we are pursuing the purest ideals with the most impeccable motivations. The officer was there to do his job, darn it, and nothing was going to get in his way. But something about the situation caused his determination escalate. In fact, the whole situation was a classic study in escalation. And suddenly he just wasn't listening anymore. He didn't consider the possibility that he could just go back and say, I couldn't do it, sorry, and this is what I dealt with. He seemed to be blind to all the signs that there was more to the story than he was seeing or understanding. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Now, I'm not looking so much at the good and evil of this story, because I find that interesting. Both were pursuing a common good in their eyes. But Luther, looking at the passage I just quoted, notes that overcoming evil by force, as the officer did when he presented this absurd uh, ultimatum, I either go away with blood in vials or body in tow, that's my only two choices. He didn't have a choice. He was there for one thing, to get the blood, and he didn't have to become judge, jury, and executioner all in one. Because he did, even the good that he might have been there resulted in good being overcome by evil. Luther again. Overcoming by force is equivalent to lending yourself to evil and wronging the enemy who wrongs you. By such a course, your enemy overcomes you, and you are made evil like himself. But if you overcome him with good, he will be made righteous like you. Frustrated, the officer could have sought what he needed, a warrant, 
and returned with it, but he pushed on instead, taking out his frustration in a primitive and unwarranted petty act of revenge. What seemed to be at stake really was him, his honor and his shame at not being able to come up with a way of doing his job. It seems to me he's in need of an attitude adjustment again, as the judge said. It's not just his actions that got him off track. In other words, it was his motivations that got him in trouble. And I think this is the point of the story. And it's the point I want to make. Because our world is full of conflict right now. There are causes that are good. There are causes that are not so good. There are people on all sides of all kinds of conversations. And we've got to come down somewhere, and we probably will. But all that's secondary. The political sphere is secondary to what's going on within us psychologically. And the road to hell is paved with good intentions subverted by very base motivations. This officer was not riding on his finer instincts. Speaking psychologically, it was his reptile brain overriding his frontal cortex with the primitive power of the sympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. Fight, flight, or freeze. You know when you're there, the rest of your brain literally shuts down. It's no place to go to take action. And I have a police officer for a brother, and he says, our training is all to keep emotion out of it, to act dispassionately. This system, fight or flight, raw and undifferentiated, sends its signals coursing along the HPA axis, and irresistibly, everything else goes south. We may get pumped up, in other words, get that adrenaline and cortisol coursing through our veins and think that we're about to enter into our finest moment. It never happens that way. He could not overcome evil with good. He could only fight fire and fire. And as one public officer has, figure has recently said, when I am pushed, I push back 10 times harder. <laughs> not a pattern to follow under any circumstances. I am not in control of my actions then, and my actions soon fall captive, and I become the plaything of forces that are greater than I, bigger, but surely not better. Luther, a spiritual overcoming is here meant. The disposition, the heart, the soul, yes, even the devil who instigates the evil, are overcome by a change of disposition. Now, we are not always able to still the storms stirred up by the devil or the details of life acting through others, but we are always able to still our own selves. Resist the lightning impulse to hit back when hit, even as it eats us up in the wee hours of the night. A spiritual overcoming is here meant the disposition, the heart, the soul. What we are after is not change of behavior, not change of public policy, not change of government, interesting as those things are. What we're interested here is in change of heart. The unchanging patterns of action and reaction that motivate all of our responses to the stress of living somehow being transcended 
by the entry of the Holy Spirit and the living God into our deliberations to create peace and to guide us to his way forward. We are called to love, in other words, love our enemies. Remember, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, absolutely. Hold fast to what is good, but love one another with brotherly and sisterly affection. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. When I'm against the wall, that's the time for prayer. And even the deep breath I'm taking now is my body trying to bring my soul back in line with God's will. If I listen to it, I'll make some time and some space to let God speak my next action in when I'm presented with something I find very threatening indeed. I'll take a deep breath, I'll chill out, I will look around me. I might say a little verbal prayer, Lord have mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, the Jesus prayer. I might say it again and again and again. When I get up in the morning with all the weight of the world on me, all the things I remember I've got to do, the best thing I can do is put it all to the side take out the Psalms and start reading them through. And every time my mind leaps away, bringing it gently, forgivingly back. Letting God's time interrupt my precious time. Letting God's world interrupt this world, which is his world anyway, by the way. I might ask myself in conflict, am I the only person suffering here when I get like this to somebody. If I understand no, I might become vulnerable then, which is the key to everything. And to reach out to those who are against me and help them reframe their responses, help them from being backed into a corner. Don't react, in other words. Reflect. Make the time, take the time in the moment to take stock of the situation, to acknowledge the conundrum, and rather than barreling ahead, pull off the side of the road, let out the clutch, put the gear shift in neutral, and pull up the parking brake. Admit defeat, in other words. Stop, contemplate. See yourself and the ones who oppose you not as mortal enemies, but as immortal enemies beings stuck once again in the very stuff of creatureliness, discovering again the reality of our limitations and needing one another to move ahead. By recognizing everyone is suffering, it actually finishes your own suffering. It also allows us to realize that often when we imagine we are in a crisis, a place of choice, with only two options, win or lose, we are in reality in no such place. Imagine for a moment if someone hit and we did not hit back or feel the need to. It's quite possible. Jesus' ministry 
brings us deliverance, just as it brought deliverance to the world in which he lived, which is a world of honor and shame, in which every time somebody hit you, you had to hit back and hit hard. It's the same world that around the world keeps nations fighting nations, settling scores that were set up in the Bronze Age, for heaven's sake. An honor that was so oppressive that an injury to one member of the group was an injury to all and required that one take action and answer with retribution. Not a strategic hit to neutralize a threat of further aggression, but retribution pure and simple, revenge, which must be carried out until finally someone was too exhausted to carry on with the quid pro quo. We do not live in the ancient Near East, but we keep a constant wary vigil, watching for every present danger, for constant threats, and it eats into our very lives. We're priming ourselves when attacked to hit back, and we lived primed to do so with an army of lawyers, I love you all, but God bless you, breathing down our necks to ensure that we get what's coming to us, come what may. Lex talionos, an eye for an eye. Well, the Lord Jesus has given us this possibility. That when we feel our lives most threatened, our very being is on the line to let it go to remember that we are dead men and women already. We died to all this in Christ. Why on earth do we keep dragging it back again, let alone in his name? Let it go. Let him enter that space. And with his love, defeat enemies by making them our friends whether within or without. He's done it before. He'll do it again if we can learn to give him the chance. Amen.